after I finished my uh, bachelor's degree from St. John's, I'm like, I'm still going in. And when becoming an intelligence analyst, you have to, uh, I, I didn't know this at the time, but I had to destroy my Colombian passport in front of an investigator. And they were like, really, like, they were really on top of me. Like, yeah, you got to put more holes in it. We need to see. They want to see, like, I don't know what, they, what they're, like, I know what they're trying to, what kind of response they're trying to elicit out of me, but it's like my loyalty to be in the army, to be able to be a part of that organization that my family always loved the army. And I, it was an honor to be able to do that time. This month, we welcome Rick Alonzo to the podcast. Rick goes by the handle Rickonomics and is a dual citizen of Colombia and the United States. He received a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and homeland corporate security while working full-time at a mortgage bank. After college, Rick joined the United States Army as an intelligence analyst and deployed to Afghanistan where he provided intelligence analysis for infantry troops in Helmand province. After his military career, he earned an MBA with a concentration in real estate. While staying in Colombia during the COVID-19 pandemic, Rick collaborated with Elisa Gibiorchik and Aaron from Jack of All Trade Prep. Rick has used his background to develop the page Rickonomics, focusing on heuristics of analysis and political instability. Rick currently runs a real estate business, performing investment, consulting, and funding, and offers advertisement and consulting in the realm of intelligence analysis while publishing work on the Instagram page Rickonomics. Kirvin and Rick discuss Latin America and its role in the current state of geopolitics, getting a clearance as a dual citizen, and the human trafficking crisis in Latin America. We hope you enjoy this episode. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right. Welcome, Rick Alonzo, to the podcast, also known as Rickonomics. How you doing, Rick? I'm doing fantastic. How's it oh, going? Man, it's good to have <laughs> you on here. Finally, I'm just so glad we finally got you on. It's good to be here. I've, I've been so hyped. Uh just since uh, we started our contact and then meeting in person in New York City was awesome. Yeah, that was such a fun time. Um, great couple of days, nice little weekend. Um, but we got to do, we basically got to do a little podcast just for no one else to hear, <laughs> you <laughs> know, over some, <laughs> over some margaritas and stuff. So that, that was fun. Um, well, I feel like we know a lot about each other now since we've had a couple of conversations together, but for everybody else who doesn't know who you are and what you do and kind of your background, if you can just give a brief synopsis of that for for the listening, for the audience. Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, so I'm Rick. Um, I started the page Rickonomics, focuses on the heuristics of intelligence analysis, pretty much to break down how to spot problems. So I really go into detail in that. In terms of my background, uh, my family, uh, came from Colombia, came to the United States. So I'm a dual citizen from Colombia and the United States. I got my bachelor's degree in, uh, crim in criminal justice, uh, minor in Homeland Corporate Security. After that, I went on to the U.S. Army to become an intelligence analyst. I was able to do a deployment there to Afghanistan. And uh, I was able to travel the country and do some training. So that was a really cool experience. 
Then I returned back to New York. I finished my MBA, some of it in New York. And then I went to Colombia, uh, the country of Colombia, to finish off the rest while the pandemic was happening. So during that time, I was able to meet our mutual friend, uh, Cyberlisa, you know, and uh, we, the podcast. Yeah, she was here. It was yeah. uh, she's fantastic. And it was so cool being able to communicate with her and just have it and, and just, you know, being able to do what I can uh, to work with her. And uh, then I currently I've always been in the real estate and mortgage business and been focusing on that and also just trying to apply all the intelligence techniques in terms of all of these uh, these moments in my life where I didn't have a uniform and I didn't have a unit with me, but I was traveling to countries like Venezuela, Colombia in Central America, and I had to pretty much use what I've learned from my previous travels, and then I was able to apply the disciplines that I learned as an intelligence analyst to really get uh, a better look at what I've always been uh, living through. So, Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's definitely a good rundown, and so this is awesome because you have a very unique experience about something that I talk about on the podcast a lot that I don't have too much experience in, and I really wanted to get somebody on here, uh, which leads to, you know, why I thought you were a perfect fit for this, and that's to talk about Latin America, specifically um, Colombia, Venezuela, and and places that may be leaning more towards China right now, because uh, right. I, I want to get some insight for the audience about what's going on and what you know personally about some of this stuff but uh we'll get we'll get into that but i really want to talk about you know your your start in the army when did you decide that uh this is a when and why when did you decide that you wanted to join the army and why the u.s army as opposed to the colombian army that's that's awesome uh it's a great question because i wanted to go to the army since i was in high school and i've always seen it i always seen this country as something that gave my family a lot of prosperity um because during the time that my family well my parents uh were living in colombia it was you know the Pablo Escobar era i mean the narcos era and right it was uh tragic and thank god that the country is now a lot better off than it was then but i have my loyalty to the united states and it's always conscience of that because when you're a dual citizen, it's like you're you're signing two oaths, but you're the one that has to really choose. So I decided to go to the U.S. Army, but my mom was like, you have to go get your bachelor's degree <laughs> before you make this call. And I'm like, all right, cool. After I finished my uh, bachelor's degree from St. John's, I'm like, I'm still going in. And when becoming an intelligence analyst, you have to, uh, I, I didn't know this at the time, but I had to destroy my Colombian passport in front of an investigator and they were like really like they were really on top of me like yeah you gotta put more holes in it we need to see they want to see like i don't know what they what they're like i know what they're trying to what kind of response they're trying to elicit out of me but it's like my loyalty to be in the army to be able to be a part of that organization that my family always loved the army and i it was an honor to be able to do that time now if we uh, could expand more on on the the passport thing because that all came about because you were you're were gonna you're an intelligence analyst. You yes. had to get a clearance. Yep. Um, in order to get the clearance, and we're seeing that a lot right now, right? There's a lot of 
um, th- there's a magnifying glass on mm-hmm. people with security clearances right now because there's a lot of leaks that are going on. And so for you to get your clearance, they basically told you, hey, you need to pledge allegiance to the United States. You can no longer have allegiance to Colombia. Yeah, um, did, they, did they explain that to you? Did the, they say, you know, I why thought, particularly? The way the way it was like like proposed to me was like, I'm losing my Colombian citizenship. That's what it felt like. Um, and, you know, I, 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 you're, you're new to the, you're new to this whole entire world of uh, intelligence. So you're thinking that they just have a magic button that that's it. No, you're no longer Colombian. You're just an American. <laughs> and destroying the passport was the symbolic and the affirmation of that happening. And then like when I got in and I'm like asking about it, it's like, no, you still have it. I'm like, wait, what? You know, like, <laughs> but, but, uh, it's they that process is extensive um i had like like my entire neighborhood was like you know like hey they really asked about you i'm like my neighborhood my entire like block yeah (laughs) it's so interesting because uh you you read about it now on social media uh, a bunch of people i would say who don't understand the process the clearance process and i've i've gone through it on multiple occasions through investigations and reinvestigations and recently they've they've kind of streamlined the reinvestigation process but as far as the investigation process goes uh, they they don't leave any stone unturned they don't <laughs> and if you see these conversations up oh yeah but this person had you know a suspension in high school mm-hmm. or a criminal offense well yeah i mean that's sort of a red flag to an investigator but if you're upfront about it, it kind of proves something about the person that they're talking to, that they're going to be upfront and honest about things and uh, they're not trying to be shady. So it's right. a big thing that they're looking for. And and so one of those things, definitely what you talked about, where they would tell you to, hey, you're going to burn your, your passport and it's a test for you. And then they go and they talk to your neighbors. They talk to friends of friends that you have because they want to know the real story of who you are. Uh, What's the going rate? What's the going rate now? Like $120,000 for like that whole process for like an individual. Like I think like Uh, there was like a cost expenditure. I remember specifically. And and it's the reason why, and you know, normally those who have a clearance are within the government or the army uh, military because it's paid for by the government. And so a lot of people trying to get into intelligence analysis from outside of that realm find it very difficult because companies will not pay. They already have to pay you whatever the the going rate is for your position. And then they're also going to have to pay this extra cost to get you a clearance when they can go try to find somebody maybe with less experience from the military, but they've already got that clearance there. Um, so, So that's a good little tidbit on if you want to get into anyone who asked me, I want to get into an intelligence analysis. My first thing is we'll sign up for the military. They'll do it for you. Yeah. It's uh, it's hard for me too. When I have people who ask me, it's like, well, listen, I'm like, I, I know how to search people on Facebook. I'm like, that's, that's great. But it's like you said, uh, that entire, which, which is essentially a massive insurance policy on the individual saying, yeah, this guy's certified clean. You yep. know, no one can leverage him or her, you know, and yeah, it's, it, it, 
the the only cost benefit is like we just said joining some kind of federal service for that. Yeah, and and then you put your time, mm-hmm. you know, your time that you put in pays back the government for doing that. Um, and speaking of your time that you had to put in to pay back for that clearance that the government gave you, you got sent to Afghanistan. Um, yes. What do you have any? Well, first of all, what what year was that? So, what are we talking about? So I uh, I went to Afghanistan in the early 2016. Uh, I was in Helmand, uh, okay. t- in TV Dwyer. So that was like mostly Southern Helmand. Um, that was like I mean, I joined with the intention I wanted to go on a deployment. Uh, most what I was really I was almost really anxious that I wasn't going to be able to go to a unit that doesn't deploy. Because when I was graduating uh, training from, from from being an intelligence analyst in Arizona, most of the class was going to Korea. Like okay. they were all going to go there. I'm like, oh no, there's what's going on over there. I want to I want to go <laughs> where the commercials take place. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. And and I w- it's it's weird because I was able to get everything I ever wanted in one contract, and then it's like you got to be really careful what you ask for because like. It comes with its own uh, experiences and baggage along with it. So you did, did you do four years? And then... I did four years. Four and then years. it was yep. a one year in the reserves. Yep. And that, but that was during like 2020 and that's a whole other experience. What? Oh, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, I think we all did uh, ready reserve in, the, in 2020. Yeah. We just stayed home. Yeah. Um, well, it's good to know that, because when I went to Huachuca, when I was in Arizona uh, at Huachuca, it was the same thing, you know, about 70% of the class got Korea and then everyone else had kind of little places like yep. Fort Stewart, other places like that. Um, yeah, when so I got the thing has changed was, over yeah, I, years. Yes. I, when I got Fort Carson, I was so excited. I was like, yes, this is like, it's a cool state with a cool area, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. How was your time at, at Fort Carson? Well, when you get there, you think you're going to have all the time in the world, but the unit I was with was very high tempo. So I was attached to a light infantry unit, uh, 4th ID, 212, and then I went up to brigade later. But uh, it was like, I got there, I was like, okay, we're going to NTC. Cool, so what happens after that? And then we go on deployment. Oh, okay, so what do we do when we get after that? We have another training schedule. It's like, wow, so... Uh, when can I go hiking? You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the uh, the op tempo of like a soft unit, you know, special operations unit where uh, you go, you get to the unit training, deploy, come back mm-hmm. training. You get about two weeks with your family before you're back out into it. Um, but for you specifically, what were what was kind of the uh, what what was what were you providing to so- that unit? When, uh, so when I'm in the training environment, it just always worked out where I'm always in like a current operation slot where I'm like in the talk and I'm getting all this information live and yeah. it's like, you just have to, you have to be able to memorize everything that your team is putting out as Intel reports and then correlating them into like things that are happening live. And that includes like uh, ISR management, like drone management and whatever collection management. And then you're communicating with the locals and you're do you're wearing so many hats sitting in this one spot. And I was, and it was like, you're, 
the importance of knowing context and applying the information. And also I had the advantage where I was going through war zones and like, like difficult zones before I was in the military. So I was like, oh, okay, well, not everybody wakes up like knowing they're the bad guy. No, like, yes, I am going to go kill so-and-so. It's like, no, that mechanic that fixed that Taliban's car is probably just a, the only mechanic within a 70-kilometer radius. He's just getting by. Let's be really careful here right? in terms of who we're leveraging and who we're targeting. And, like, having that spin, it's not like uh, what it is in Hollywood that everyone's just, like, has, like, the bad guy filter. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's something great to bring up because a lot of the times, especially, you know, outside of the intelligence community, when people are looking into it, they go, oh, you know, targeting packets, high value targets. We're just talking about killing all these people. And that's not always the case. Sometimes an intelligence analyst is there to prevent something from happening, to prevent, you know, someone who may not be a terrorist from getting rolled up and becoming a terrorist in the future. Uh, but also preventing, you know, those infantry guys from running into an IED mm -hmm. or running into an ambush. Um, did you have any experiences where you were able to prevent something like that? There, and it's, uh, it's, it's, I would say I, I've been blessed that the experience of having the criminal justice degree and the Homeland Security, like just having that uh, bachelor's degree. Uh, in my background was like, okay, that sounds like a war crime. That sounds, this does not look good in legalistic terms, you know? And right. so one, one instance where, you know, you're, uh, it, when we, we have an asset following somebody in some place and somewhere, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah. yeah. And you're following, he's saying goodbye to his family. He's driving his car and it's like, okay, well, he's too close to a popular area. We already have this packet ready. This guy is not going to be long for this earth, right? But what happens is, is that his vehicle breaks down and then you would think it was like uh, Nelson Mandela that his vehicle broke down. And everyone's coming out to help him and, you know, right. they have a tractor, they drag it and everything else. And then he goes to the, uh, he goes to the mechanic. And what happened was, is that somebody in the talk wanted to label like that's a Taliban mechanic shop that we should look into. It's like, no, it's the only mechanic shop <laughs> within this whole entire area. If that goes, are we going to fix these people's cars? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, are what, what is the, what, because it, there, everyone forgets they're like, this, this, there's this responsibility gap, right? Like once you remove anything core, like a mechanic shop or you remove the people who are wearing the Taliban t-shirt and you push them out and now there's no security apparatus inside a town. Are you going to be the new policeman? Are you going to be the new enforcers? And then if not, it just leaves this gap. And that's yeah. what I had to. And then I also had to throw it into there. It's like, it's not going to look the, the, the old, and this is sad because like, this is the ultimate way that this was able to get crushed as an idea is like, this is not going to look for anyone's career if we are known as blowing up mechanic shops and local shops. It's like, oh, yeah, it's not going to look good. Then we just moved on, and then we were able to do the strike, and then because he was away from the population, it isn't really fixed. Right. Unfortunately, if, if he would have known, he didn't have to fix the car, you know? like. <laughs> and that I see that as like a uniquely Western idea in fighting a war is, hey, we can't affect the population because what are the repercussions of that? 
when you're when you mean you see Russia right now. Um, God forbid a war with China starts soon. Yeah, I got from um, that. Those are the type of nations that will go. I don't care what the backlash is. We have to win this at all cost. It's it's strange because like it was it was so because like I mean I'm human. And I'm thinking, like, well, what would happen if there was, like, this scorched earth approach, right? And because if you were to just be, like, anyone who does business with Taliban, it, it will die if that policy was in place, right? Right. And we, if we weren't the United States, and that was, like, the, the very crude response that we had. Um, people, it depends what those people dealt with their whole entire lives and generations, because in reality, the locals are pretty much used to people being extremely aggressive with loyalties. It's like, you don't pay this group, you pay this group, you're going to pay taxes to us and not them, because if you pay taxes to them, you will die. And then we come in with our Western approach where it's like, we're going to help you, but we're not going to come in and help you entirely. We're going to build a school, but it's up to you to protect it, even though you didn't ask for it. You know what I mean? Like, And it becomes this teeter-totter of morality of like, are we fully there or are we not? And in and that's why, and that's pretty much one of the drives of why I focus more on the heuristics of analyzing situations uh, within Rickonomics is because it, it, there is a problem when you're trying to be the good guy and your idea of being a good guy is completely different than who you're trying to help is perspective of a good guy is. Right. So, so can you kind of explain um, heuristics? So when you're going into the heuristics of intelligence, you're trying to eliminate as much bias as possible so for example if you're going to a random let's just let's just go to another like a, if you go to a country like colombia right and you from your perspective is like okay we need to work with politicians there we need to work with the government and that's because in your protocols and in your statutes and legal terms and everything else it's like okay dealing with the government will always 100 percent uh, be good and legal, but you have to step back and look at the perspective. Well, who's really providing the security in an area? Some parts of the jungle in Colombia are still managed by paramilitary groups. Right. So it's like, okay, you want to build a core infrastructure in a jungle and you think going through the government is going to be the legal way, but is it going to lead to the result that you're looking for? Because the government will freely say, yeah, pay these permits, you can build in the jungle, and we'll provide the security. And then you're like, okay, I'm doing everything correctly. The assessment's correct. It's all legal. It's all lined up. But then when you realize is that you didn't zoom out and you didn't see the realities of like, I might have to bribe paramilitary right. groups <laughs> to get this piece of infrastructure going in a jungle. Otherwise, my entire team is going to be hung by trees. And that happens and everyone, and it's, and it's unfortunate that people don't understand, like the reason why Colombia still has a majority of its jungles is because there's people living in there that don't want people in them. Not because of some altruistic, you know, form of like rainforest uh, conservation. Save save the planet. Yeah, exactly. There's people who really want to protect what's in the jungle, you know? Um, So that's, so so when you're looking at the heuristics of it, it's like, you can have an entire analysis that's correct and legal. Right. But you have to all, I'm offering more tools to the person who reads my material on how to not have that situation happen where 
you have an entire crew that's wiped out, even though you did everything correctly. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Right. Sometimes the, the legal, moral thing, there's gray, you know, there's gray areas to everything. Oh, yeah. There's an entire, you know, intelligence field about gray areas within analysis. So it is, and it's tough. And, and you do some things as an, as an analyst, I can say that yeah. I've been in places and, and have done some things that um, as it's going on, you're not comfortable even though you know everything about the situation and what's going on, you just feel uncomfortable about it. And you have to, you have to understand, you can't just speak up, especially working like, you know, infantry guys like you did, you know, special operations guys, you're, you're not going to be able to stand up and just say, Hey, this doesn't feel right. Let's not do it. You have to actually understand the situation and then provide those insights to them in a way that, they can understand it and why doing that would be the wrong thing to do exactly. there will be pressure there there has been pressure to change analysis to make it fit a certain narrative and it, if you don't stand up against that in a way that is uh is understandable to someone outside the intelligence community that let's say that infantry commander who doesn't understand sort of the analysis around it if you can't explain it in that way, they're going to say for you to go kick rocks and they're going to do it anyway. And and then there's an international incident can happen. There's uh, it's I think, you know, in retrospect, because like at first, like, you know, you're you're a young analyst and you're seeing these things and then you're like, geez, like, why is this being twisted this way? Why is this going this direction? Like, like, why doesn't it feel like the reality is just not going all the way to the top. I mean, if you see like in the, even the Afghan papers that came out, like the, there was such a massive disconnect uh, with top level leadership, with lower level leadership, because everyone wanted to sit, like you said, follow this narrative. Yep. And then I understand when I zoomed out and I'm left and I'm asking questions to like former leaders that I worked under, the amount of pressure it is to just have a quantitative results, right? Yep. Just to have, just to be able to have your results in visible metrics that fits perfectly on an Excel spreadsheet or on a PowerPoint is tremendous on leaders. And I don't envy them at all because they literally cannot move forward unless they have this amount of kills, this amount of actions, this amount of things. They downsize the base. They upsize the base. They, it's, uh, and this pressure to if your unit is not doing anything it's it's supposedly doing it wrong right like it's just right. like and even though there might be a situation where its presence is actually creating some kind of bubble of like peace and nonviolence but if it's not doing anything to interact with its local environment then all of a sudden it looks like no one's doing anything and it looks negative so a uh, that context of like the career pressure influencing intelligence analysts, uh, the intelligence analysis process is one of the biggest hurdles that I see. Yeah, definitely. Um, that I want to 
now go to focus on probably what we'll speak a lot more through the, the rest of this podcast, which is you went to Afghanistan, did uh, did an excellent job. You got out, you got your MBA after that. Um, but then you decided in 2020 to go to Columbia. Now, did you go to Columbia before COVID and yes. then kind of got uh, stuck there? Well, I went, so it was uh, my last semester of getting my MBA and I was just getting out of the 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 Army Reserves, right? And I was like, "Well, you know what? It's the 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 protocols there looked a lot more relaxed, and the weather was better. So right. I was like, let me just like let me just finish my last couple of classes online, and uh, it wasn't even that much. And then just go down there, study, and really dive into what I've learned. It was like a moment that I was seeking for self reflection. But when I went down there it ended up becoming a there was so much political uh instability that was going on because of people weren't agreeing with the protocols there was a like i i have property down there and i was staying in uh i was staying in the apartment in the top floor and this is when i started to realize that there like even more so from the afghan deployment that there's a disconnect between how the news reports it and and what's going on on the ground Right. I was seeing that again when I was down there. So when there was a massive protest, so in order for me to move around, I was using the Snapchat map. Okay. Like, yeah. So like, oh, okay, because people like to show on Snapchat where all the fires are. So if I see heat maps, like, and like yeah. it's like great, okay, great geospatial intelligence. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, well, it's not, it's not Palantir. It's not what I used to play with, but hey, right. <laughs> but, uh, I was able to navigate roads and avoid these things. And, but, uh, on one night I just, there was so, there was all these people from this, uh, smaller town that I had, like I was able to look at from my building and they were all going into the streets and all I heard was explosions. I heard, I saw balls of fire. I saw fireworks being launched into the streets. It's like you're and back the, in Afghanistan for a second. Yeah, I mean, like, I thought I took a break, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> One war like, zone uh, to another. Yeah. I'm like, good. I'm like, okay, well, my door is like breach proof, right? Um, because that's the protocols I like to have in where I live. And uh, I locked it. I turned out the lights. I had a really crappy infrared, like, binocular, which was like the closest thing I can get till night vision. And uh, I saw. I saw some, I saw people like swarming around like a cop. And then I heard like, then I heard gunshots go off and then the day, then daytime happens. And I'm like, what just happened? And it was like, well, all the houses are intact, right? All right. the, uh, except one piece of infrastructure which was the toll booth. And I'm like, Oh God. And then like, you look at the news, so I'm looking at the news and they're saying like, Oh, you know, people were protesting against like, you know, the, what the government's doing during these protocols. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. So then I start asking the locals around like, Hey, what happened to toll booth? Yeah. The government was supposed to remove that toll booth two years ago. And they put two toll booths within like, like 400 meters of each other, like double tolling the population. Yeah. Okay. And I'm like, so what do you guys do? It's like, well, it was about time it came down. So we figured, uh, <laughs> we come together as a town and, uh, remove which, it. <laughs> which I think was a, a form of what happened during the lockdowns of, for COVID, you know, it was a lot of, 
and, and this was a lot of younger people, I would say younger males, yes. who had nothing to do. Oh, yeah. Who were told to just stay in your house and don't do anything. Um, most most of them getting on social media, seeing outrageous things going on, real outrageous things going on. You know, that, that goes to the toll booth like you were talking about. Such a, it's, a, it's an economic, um, you know, government sort of overpowering the people, telling them this is what you're going to do. We had, you know, government overreach here in the U.S., protests about that. Um, protests about police brutality and and it it was all I would say backed on lockdowns and keeping everybody shut down during COVID and I don't think this is why and, and the government has analysts they have these analysts and that you couldn't see you couldn't predict that when you tell an entire population to stay in their house they're going to get antsy and they're gonna do violent stuff oh yeah and not many people had there were people who saw it coming like yourself myself could see that that was gonna happen but as far as leadership goes they they didn't we they either they didn't know or they didn't want to talk about it it's um i think what happens is because like i sometimes like even just like when it comes down to community decisions like in those boardrooms and i'm like there and i just see what happens to the decision maker where it's like, well, listen, sir, if you allow everyone to go about their business after we told them to lock down, what happens if people get sick and die again? Then it's on your hands and it's blood on your hands. And then we have to, then you have to pay back the community and somehow. And I think it's just safer if everyone stays inside and that's coming from a lawyer and that's right. not coming and it's not coming from, and then the, the person who's supposed to know what's going on, like a police chief, like, hey, listen, I've been on the streets for this amount of years and I know people are going to be violent. And it's just all these people talking over each other and then people just going, well, what they believe is the the path of least resistance. It's like, well, it won't be that many people going out into the streets. But then you and I both know it was that many people going yeah. out into the streets. And for different, but, you know, for different reasons. For reasons. Everybody, it wasn't everybody coming together for one kumbaya moment they just want to go outside it was the only legal way because in new york only one kind of protest was legal right now and it's that was a weird infringement on the first amendment rights but it was like i'll just go outside and then what happened was like i spoke to people within the nypd actually analysts within the nypd they realized that unfortunately there were bad actors from local criminal organizations that were taking advantage of the looting and everything else. And, but I would say that the protest in the United States is more unpredictable and, and not, and harder to figure out than what I found during my time in Colombia, because I was always shocked on why people were protesting, but I was never questioning the reason why when I was in Colombia. Like for example, I was with my cousin and she, and her and I were driving down this road and there were barrels of fire in the middle of the road. And we we're like, geez, like what's going on? We did a, we pulled a U-turn. I grabbed the wheel cause she just froze. So I grabbed the, like, you know, and she did the U-turn. And then I find out later, the reason why they were closing down the road is because the government wanted to wipe out 50 small homes that were along this water side and they didn't provide them a place to go. And it's like, oh, well, I can see, I can see the connects. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. I can, I can, I can see that. And then there was another one where there was a, a missing woman, but the body was like supposed to be in like a river somewhere, and the local police department didn't want to provide a scuba team. And it's like, and then there was a protest about that. Meanwhile, you're in the New York City subway, and you have no idea why that guy pushed you in front of a train. You know right. What I mean, like, really unpredictable. Yeah. It's... But it does always seem to fall under too much gover- government oversight. Yes. Typically, and and I don't think that is just a, uh, we hear it a lot in Latin America, you mm-hmm. know, a place like Venezuela, which is, uh, you know, big government sort of uh, socialist doctrine. Right. And so you've got a lot of people who will protest because the government is, it's enacting even more laws or taking the ability to move money from, you know, from the bank to your personal accounts. Um, so sort of sort of things like that. But it hasn't really, I mean, that hasn't really hit China yet, which it does a very good job. Now, I would say about six months ago, right, we saw a couple of protests when China stopped certain banks from allowing people to pull money out. Um, and that was like the first sort of instance of, oh, this isn't just... You know, even a very authoritarian regime like Xi in China can isn't is still vulnerable to this kind of protesting. Um, it, when I so, hear about so that, so what is what is done like in Latin America that's different from the authoritarian stuff in China that kind of allows these sort of uprisings? And I know people people are in Venezuela, especially you know, over the past few years, have been killed and. You know, protests were shot at, and and the army, the military was was taken in to get all these people out. But they still rise up, and you still see these protests in a very authoritarian regime. What I've witnessed in Venezuela, and I have family in Venezuela. I have one cousin that inspires me as an American. Like he, he has. There's no. You can't have a, a pistol permit in Venezuela, but he found a way to legally. Have a have a concealed carry license wow. in in Venezuela, right? That's ingenuity. Yeah, right. And to legally have it, right, and to legally use it. And he also found a way to have his family have three meals a day. Uh, he he's an engineer, so he's able to have water all the time. And he, I would say, the the standard of living he has, he in particular has, because definitely not reflective of everyone else down there. He's in like the one percent by by every stretch of the imagination. Okay, he bended reality to have his lifestyle, and I think that is what happens when if you had like a thousand people like him, or ten thousand people like him, that bend the reality of saying no, I am going to live this way, no matter what you say or what you do to me, I'm going to live this way. the The problem is in Venezuela is that it's a com- it's a country that has complacency. Because for over 70 years, they've been relying on oil as one of the okay. primary sources of, uh, of revenue. Right. Everything was paid for. And uh, through Chavismo, they thought like uh, for the policy that Hugo Chavez implemented uh, when he was elected or when he took over, um, he was going to be able to fund all these social programs on $5 a gallon. Like, 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 a fi- like that was back then. And people were always... As long as the person is not starving, as long as you can guarantee somebody in Venezuela at least two meals a day, 
the people who are on that two meals a day will always attack those who demand more. And that's right. the problem is, is that you have these people who really are uh, indoctrinated to live on the bare minimum that the government provides. And they are scared out of their minds if anyone takes that away from them, which is why you would see protesters against protesters is because you have people who are connected to the government almost by an umbilical cord uh, willing to commit violence and hunt people down on the behest of the go of the government. There's even like uh, smaller organizations that are supposedly by the citizens, right? That act as a smaller paramilitary force, like, you know, uh, to track down these people that say, hey, this guy doesn't believe we should all have these free meals, you know? And then all of a sudden you're the bad guy. And... So that's a lot in how, like, Anugo Chavez or, you know, even Pablo Escobar, mm -hmm. whenever he, he was, I would say, in power, I mean, he controlled a lot of that, a lot of land there. Um, but sort of, and I, mean, I, don't, I won't say it's a lie, but they, they're sort of presented as this, the leader of the people. Mm -hmm. And so they will say, we are the common man's leader. And it's that same, you'll get your two, your two, meals a day right unlike here in the u.s where you can go yeah you may not get the the two meals a day but if you work hard enough hopefully you can move up and and maybe you can make something of yourself at there you know what what they were saying was this is who you are this is yeah. what you're gonna be and i'm gonna give you those meals or i'm gonna let your family survive as long as you give me your allegiance yeah it's interesting how united states handles it um, but to, uh, to comment on like leaders saying that, um, they're going to provide all these social programs and stuff like that. Uh, just yesterday, uh, the vice president of Colombia is in deep trouble because she, uh, had a house, um, how can I put it reconstructed in the image of one of the most expensive homes yes. in Cartagena. Yeah. So this thing is like $1.3 million, you know what I mean? not like it's not a cheap job and she on the books makes like 30 percent less than the sitting president you know and she's and you know she was she was revered as somebody she dressed in like traditional garb like you know like uh like indigenous uh uh traditional garb talking about sharing the wealth talking about that there shouldn't be like, like well pretty much similar uh rhetoric you would hear from an Alexandra Orozco Cortez or from a Bernie Sanders and right but it, then she gets caught with this mansion you know what I mean right and it's the same thing in Venezuela all the leaders they they have all these amazing things you know they're definitely not eating the same thing that the rest of the population goes to um and but when we talk about so, like keeping a certain class of people with the two meals a day right Right. The United States does it very differently than how Venezuela or China does it. And it's like you said, with this expectation like, hey, here's some, here's the welfare. And the expectation is you're going to keep going back to the welfare office. So we add this bureaucratic hurdle of you not being able to be relaxed in this position. But there's people who treat being in that position as a full-time job. Right. And what happens is like that sect of people if you don't get the welfare check if they don't if they start to starve like to me it's baffling to me that in the united states there's a poverty line but 
when you look at the graph, it's like people in poverty in the United States have the highest chances of obesity. It's like, that's a whole other definition of what poverty looks like in the rest of the world where people right. are eating out of trash cans, you know? Uh, so United States has a way of keeping people in that sect and people just can't get up again, get out of it. They're underemployed or, you know, if they make too much money, then they can't have the, the, the healthcare for their family. So there's people right. in really tough spots, but in China and in Venezuela, it's like, well, if you just want to be not working, well then here you go. That's it. We, we don't have an expectation of you pulling yourself by the bootstraps and, uh, you're just going to go into this other part of society. You're going to not have the same privileges and access as everybody else, but you're going to have your meals and you're going to be in this house and that's it. There's like, it's complete giving up on that person, but which is kind of like the reverse of what United States sees that everyone can make it. Yeah. That's, that's definitely the reverse of, and in the U S gets a lot of backlash for good reason for quite a few things, but, but I do stand by and in our, in the last in, insightful inquiries, when I was talking to Jeff Bosley about this, you know, we talked about the same exact thing, um, because we talked about, we were talking about movies and we talked about any, anything everywhere all at once, which had, um, the guy that played short round in Indiana Jones and he won an Oscar and he made a big speech and his entire speech was the American dream. I came here on a boat. I was you know, in this land that I didn't know anything about, and I made it. And he said, look, Mom, I made it. And so, as opposed to a lot of these authoritarian regimes, it is different here, because you can have a guy come from Colombia and join the army and make his own, you know, intelligence page on Instagram, and he's not silenced by the government. I mean, that's another conversation to have, because that's been attempted within the United States. But for the most part, you your money is not taken from you because you're trying to do that stuff. Um, and there, especially as a veteran, there are things, you know, there are programs that you can be involved in that give you access to a whole bunch of different things. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. The, what you have access to in this country is, is incredible. Um, no, go ahead. Oh, I've sat with Colombian soldiers and I've told them like what American soldiers get and it blows their mind. It just, well, like, right. immediately, yeah. just, like, they're like, wait, it's a career path. You're not like forced into it. You can pick your job. Like you can like get, you can get college credits. We're going to these training. Yeah. Like, I don't want to sound like a recruiter here, but, <laughs> you know I mean? but like, it's like, if you're willing to put up with the sacrifice, there is a high yield return for doing so. And yeah, and I, unlike you, I, when I got in, uh, so I was I was at Huachuca, and we were in Afghanistan. We had just gone into Afghanistan. We were getting ready to shock and all Iraq, and so I knew at some point I was gonna go. I was gonna be deployed. That was a given, and I didn't want to. That's not that's not why I got in. I got in to learn this skill and get out, and I spent fifteen years doing <laughs> it because um, it, it became a career for me. And I, I saw it as an opportunity instead of as something that time was taken away from me. And so, yeah, I was given an opportunity. And, and I'm just some dumb kid from small town Louisiana who was broke most of his life. So for, for anyone, yeah, we're not trying to be recruiters, but <laughs> if, uh, if you're thinking about it, I would say definitely, definitely do the research. 
It is yeah. an opportunity for you to to gain a skill, not just free of charge. Yeah. You get paid to do it. You basically, oh, yeah. it's basically like going to college. You're going to get paid to go to college for your uh, military operation specialty, which is your MOS. And then on top of that, you'll get college credit for that. And on top of that, you get the post 9-11 GI Bill, which gives you free college or gives your family free college. Um, so the the amount of stuff that we have, the how we've changed from, let's say, Vietnam on how we treat veterans to today is just incredible. It's it's highly incredible. I, I would say a lot of the wealth that even came from the Army wasn't even just the programs. It was like everything after the military seems functionally easier to me. You right. Know, like it's just like, well, you know what? I'm not getting shot at. You know yeah. what? I I don't have a twenty four hour duty right now. You know what I mean? Like right. I can sleep in a bed of Mike choosing. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's a massive amount of gratitude that you have in everything in life. So if you can walk out of that, know what come out of that abyss, skilled, stronger, and fortified, it's worth it. If you go in with that mentality, if you go in without a plan, it's like anything, it's not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah. If you, you just go in and say, you know, I had a bunch of friends that did that. So I'm just going to go infantry, do four years and get out. And no, no offense to anyone going infantry. If you do it and you, you put your, your whole body and heart into it, you come out with it with a network of people and a skill set that is highly desirable oh, yeah. within the United States. Yes. But that was what the, oh, I just want to go in the infantry, shoot some people, and then I'll get out. I was like, that is a terrible mindset <laughs> yes. to be in. Um, and so I do, I want to shift away from this after our pro-US plug that we mm -hmm. did here and get back to <laughs> to um, Latin America. But the first thing I want to touch on in Latin America is uh, sort of the human trafficking that goes on. Because you went out to Colombia, stayed in Colombia, and you got involved with uh, with Alyssa, with Aaron from Jack of All Tradecraft, um, doing human trafficking. I assume, like <laughs> analysis, not the actual trafficking of human beings. No, 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 no. That's <laughs> <laughs> definitely more on the good guy side, <laughs> right? But uh, I would say when I was down there and being able to talk to. Uh, uh, Alyssa and uh, and Aaron, they're just amazing people. Um, it's to show them the perspective of what human trafficking looks like down there. So, a lot of people still think of Taken as like the movie right. Taken, as like that's what it looks like, man. You know, and I was going through the on the coastline, so I was going through Turbo, I was going through like the Gulf of Colombia. And I was able to see like these massive tent cities and it's not tent cities like you see in Los Angeles that they're made by brand name brand tents. No, these are plastic bags with sticks like it's 100 degrees outside and it's 120 degrees inside the tent. You know, it's and it's just to make sure that you're you have some kind of shelter and it's farmlands full of this stuff of people migrating from Venezuela through Colombia and going and heading toward what's called the Darian Gap or the Darian Jungle. Mm -hmm. And this is the biggest funnel of just human migrants, trafficking, smuggling, narcotics. Everything is going through this jungle that links between Colombia and Panama. And 
you have people from all over the world taking advantage of lax visa policies from Latin American countries uh, coming from like regions in Africa, Cuba, uh, and just coming from all around the world, even China. And that's that was mind blowing to me. And they are all coming into these other nations in South America, funneling themselves because you're not going to find many Colombians um, in, in this journey. It's mostly from other countries uh, from around the world. And what happens is, is a lot of them come without the notion that something terrible can happen to them during this time. So a lot of them, they can't afford the trip. A lot of them can't. Right. And what happens is they get to the situation where it became smuggling to trafficking. It's like, well, guess what? You're going to cross that border and this is the debt you're going to pay through labor. If you're lucky, it's labor. Because if you're a female, it's sex work, you know? Right. And then that's sex trafficking. And, and unfortunately, people, these people become super vulnerable because all they're carrying is the most valuable possessions that fits on their body. And unfortunately, there is uh, former sectors of FARC and, and current sectors of paramilitary groups and organized criminal groups that they're like, well, if they don't travel in packs and we can just steal from them because we know they're going to carry their valuables, they're going to carry their... So these people, just before they get through the jungle, they're robbed, they're killed, if they don't, and it's and it's bodies in that jungle. It's a traumatizing experience, and there's no political campaign or ad that goes around the world saying, "Hey, don't go through that jungle because X, Y, and Z is going to happen to you." These people have no knowledge or information of how hard it is to even survive that jungle. And of course, once they pass through that jungle, they're not going to be like, was it worth it? I lost my friends. I'm just going to turn back. No, now they have no choice but to funnel through all the way through uh, all these Central American countries, cross uh, the Mexican border and get to the United States because they would have been all for nothing. So, and a lot of them are being like, have to do that move. Otherwise the family that they used as like, I would say like as a coast hanger for them, they'll get killed by these right. criminal entities. So it's a lot. It's, and that was the kind of stuff that, uh, I, I linked up with Alyssa. So there's a paper that I sent to her and that that's going to be published about that topic. And, but yeah, it's, it's a heavy, especially when you're witnessing it, when you're seeing the people go right. through, go through that and they, uh, have no idea what they're in for. They think it's bad when they're carrying the stuff to the jungle, but they have no idea what's going to happen to them when they're in there. So is that sort of the the prize at the end, getting to the United States? It's, or is, uh, that how, uh, is that a way to trap somebody? Uh, what happens is there's a lot of misconceptions that a lot of people have about the United States. So I was, so just being in Beijing, uh, being in Colombia, uh, there was this woman that's like, yeah, you know what? She's like 24. Like She's like, yeah, I'm just going to go I have a visa. I'm just going to go. I'm going to let my visa expire. I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. Do you know English? She's like, no. I'm like, okay, do you have any skills? And you're, uh, she's like, mm, well, I mean, I, I, I graduated uh, high school. You know what I mean? I would say high right. school is very competent down there, equivalent to an associate's degree, but that doesn't really matter on paper once you get here. Right. But uh, she, had, she had this idea that just jobs are just just being, you know, thrown out the window. There's too many of them, you know, just... We'll take anybody and no one has these real conversations of like, this was during 2020. Nobody knew 
who was going to work and who was going to have a job. People who were just looking to aspire to be able to clean dishes didn't have a job, you know, right. it, it, and there's this, this disconnect of reality where it was like, oh, the road, the roads are paved with gold and stuff like that. They watch the movies and they think everything's phenomenal, but there's no, there, there's no innate knowledge of like, it's going to be really difficult, but I would say, I mean, I, I work with the Latino community a lot and the people who come here like, and they work and they become citizens and they do all those things. They, they, they're immensely successful. You know, it's a lot of hard work, but a lot of people come back and that's why you don't even see that many Colombians coming to the United States because Colombia is still relative is a nicer place than it used to be. And there's no survival need. Like, right. That's why you see the the funneling of people coming from Venezuela, you know, even come, like coming from uh, from Africa, from Haiti. And like that's people who are running from something and running from death itself most of the time. So where does China's influence fit into all of this? China has been this is the the, the like I, I see the reports that I that America pushes out, but when I talk to people who are associated with the government in like Argentina and in Colombia and in Venezuela, what happens is, is that United States used to be this, this entity that would just throw money to make sure right. that there was no Soviet influence, you know, like, yep. it was like, okay, you know what you want to, you want a dam, we'll build you a dam, you know, you'll be in debt, but you'll be in, uh, but everyone sees this thing of like, oh, okay, you're these multinational corporations or government entities are indebting countries and using economic warfare to leverage against it's like okay but this is the perspective of the of the country let's say a country like uh colombia or argentina oh wow you're willing to put all this debt build us a dam and if we don't pay it it's not like you're going to what take it with you right. you know <laughs> destroy it yeah destroy we're gonna do destroy we're not gonna let you you know like and they're just taking advantage of this ride as long as they can. So there was an, there was a, a project that stopped in 2019 and it was going to be what's called a land canal. So it would go from, it would be in, uh, in Colombian territory. It would go from the Pacific Ocean all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. So this is funny, right? If they were to do that, it would cut the Darien jungle. So all these people who are going to who are paying to get through that jungle would be stopped by all these train lines because they'd be right. going across the country. And this is so, a U.S. backed. This was China. Chinese this is a China backed. project. Uh, and let's just say when the government's like, "Yeah, sure, let's uh, let's let's do some surveying and we'll see where that goes." And uh, here's the permits for it. But China didn't negotiate with the paramilitary organizations that existed in those zones, so. You're not going to hear it, uh, like you're not going to hear it uh, on the internet. But a lot of those pe- those Chinese surveyors didn't make it home, you know. Right. You got to pay the bills. To pay the bill, yeah, exactly. So uh, that would it was going to be China's answer to like the Panama Canal, you know. It was going to be a land canal. Right. And now it's like okay, well, the Colombian government got their money because they these countries paid for the ability to survey. And these projects fall through. In Argentina, it's like, oh, China's going to build all these trainways from north to south of all of Argentina. 
But what happens is China's like, oh, it's went from a train plan to a bus plan. Okay, well, we're not going to pay you for a bus plan. Well, well how about uh, how about some cars? You want some cars? It's like, no, we don't want cars. We wanted the train. And all these countries are realizing, I they understand that China is like kind of scamming them. Yeah, but this they're is, trying this to, is but they're going to scam back. You know, definitely. This is this was very much highlighted in the Belt and Road Initiative mm-hmm. that that China put out a few years ago, um, and countries jumped on it. Because trade with China, we were going to be this, you know, get so much economic influence around the world. And what it really did was put these, what you said, it put these countries in debt. And so now they're indebted to China and they're seeing it now. But what, what I wouldn't say it kind of scares me, but what I'm trying to look at is as of right now, China has started to influence some of these countries into you know, going away from recognizing Taiwan or pushing away from relations with the United States. Do you have any concern at all over that? It's just that like I, I understand the perspective of what these countries are doing. It's like, let's talk about like Nicaragua, right? That just doesn't acknowledge Taiwan, right? Right. It's like, what 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 is the value to them to say it is a country? Like, right. You know what I mean, like that, like like you're you're the president of Nicaragua and it's like, okay, if you're go- if you want all these billions of dollars. All you got to say is Taiwan's not a country. What's time? Their, their perspective of the leadership is like, okay, fine, it's not a country. Whatever, you know that. Like that's they're not, they're not in the game, so to say. You know, like they're just they're. It's a way to cater to a side that's already providing wealth to them, right? Which and is why you're like, here. That's a great insight into how those countries, yeah, actually view what China's doing yeah. where it's if the United like, States were to come in and say like, Hey, we'll pay you this much more to say Taiwan is a country. Well, that's kind of weird. Cause like the United States doesn't have an official stance, blah, blah, yada, right, yada. But we'll, right. take the money. we'll take the money and say, yeah, it is. We'll put, we'll put the flags up right next to our government building. Sure. Why not? You know? Like, right. But it's, it's just that a lot, I, I would say not that just the American perspective, but the Western perspective is that you're not making this, you're not keeping in mind that of somebody making a decision from a point of being desperate. You know, like if you're a country that you know your people are starving, they need infrastructure, and the only country right now that's extending a hand to you is China, you're going to follow the script. Right. That, that's, that's the reality of it because there is no innate survival reason to side with the Western world. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, oh, okay, I'm just going to default to favoring the West. Well, no, because I'm a leader of my own country. Right. So I have to do what's best for my country. And whether it's a short-term game or a long-term game is yet to be said, but at least right now, I get this key piece of infrastructure that gives jobs to people. And that's the misleading part, is that everyone thinks that these, like when China wants to build a dam or a road, that they're going to employ the local people. Right. And that's not, that's that's not, not what happens. That's something I saw in Africa all the time. It was, you know, yeah, they could pull out these resources from, you know, our country in mm-hmm. Africa and they'll give us jobs and they'll do this. Well, what China did was they brought their own people to that country. They built their own hotel. They built their own restaurant. They told their people, you will stay at, you know, business leaders that were going out there. You will stay at that hotel. Workers, you're going to eat at this restaurant and nowhere else. And they provided zero support to the economy of that country. And then when they got out, they did nothing for the country. And it was, like you said, it was a scam. They, mm-hmm. they basically scammed the country. 
It's um, it's it's it, and a lot of these countries are catching on. It's harder to do in Colombia, which is why when you see like the 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 China sphere of influence in Latin America, there's like this curious gap where Colombia is. Um, but there's some countries that even if it's even if it is that situation, it's better than nothing, right? You know, and that's that's the unfortunate uh, truth about that. Um, but I would say the influence of china within uh within latin america is going to be completely dependent on if the united states remembers that it has a backyard and yeah and that's that's yeah. like <laughs> like that's that's we stopped after the cold war because we're like okay no definitely we're no taking on it to influence all these countries with almost infinite resources you know <laughs> and then the whole the the counterterrorism kind of stopped a lot of this influence within Latin America that the U.S. was was trying to gain. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you, if you hear influence, kind of think, well, that's information operations, and that's uh, sort of a negative thing. But what I'm here, what I'm talking about with influence is providing economic support for these countries. Now we're coming after 20 years of of war in the Middle East. We have no economic support to provide. You know, we're mm-hmm. and then sending all of our weapons to Ukraine to support that country. And I think there's a, there's a lot of other countries that we, the U S used to support that look now and go, Hey, where, where is my support now? And so it, we're kind of seeing a changing of the, the perspective of the United States. And it has nothing to do with the election of Donald Trump or Joe Biden. It has everything to do with, you know, the, the infighting that is going on within the country and the lack of support, you know, outwardly. Right. Uh, it's uh, it's it's strange, right? Because there's a duality to how people want United States to interact with the world, right? Um, right. Like one moment we're imperialist, and the other one we're benevolent heroes, you know. And uh, what's funny is that, like, when you talk to when you talk to people from around the world, it's like, oh my God, my when it like like in venezuela when is the united states going to come and liberate us you know what i mean yeah. like yeah like when is that happening i guess uh, when uh, michael bolton or not michael bolton <laughs> uh when when bolton gets in power yeah with his yeah. 2024 presidential run uh now you know what like i i i joked around with this uh when i was while i was in the army i was like you guys go to venezuela you guys won't come back and they were like, what do you mean we're not coming back? I'm like, listen, there's beaches, there's beer, there's beautiful women. You guys don't want to come back after that. After you Americanize it, put some flags up. You, know, you, guys, you yeah. want to stay You'll there. Stay there. station. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I would. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, I haven't been into in Latin America, but I know it's got to be beautiful. It is. That's the... And you know what? And that's our definitions of freedom. Like, I have to live with two definitions of it, right? Because there's freedoms that you enjoy in America, like being able, I, for me, example, like I love being able to know that I can call the police to respond and not expect to bribe anybody. You know what I mean? Right. Like that is a very big, huge, like, uh, like stress that's off my shoulders. But in Colombia, even though it's like, they're strict in some senses, but they're free in others. It's like, I can go down a river, swim in it and eat next to it and not have to pay for a permit. I don't have to worry about a park ranger. I don't have to worry about, you know what I mean? But yeah. then what do I have to do? Now, when you go to sleep, you have to be on 24-hour guard because you don't know what's right. going to happen. So it's well, give and take. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
that's dangerous freedom. <laughs> well, then I really want to I want to thank you for coming on because those insights into Latin America are very key. Um, you know, we're going to stick to communicating with each other so I can get those insights as well. Um, we can get those out to, to everybody who's listening. But I do want to to finish up with just giving you an opportunity to tell everybody where they can find you, what you're doing, you know, what you're looking to promote, anything you want. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, so you can find me at uh, Rickonom- uh, Rickonomics, R-I-C-K-Y-N-O-M-I-C-S, and that's on Instagram. I post most of my work there. I will be publishing more papers, so if you follow the link in that description, you're going to find where you can find the rest of my work. And uh, I try to help out as much people as possible, so if, there's a, if there is uh, more insight that you need, just DM me and uh, we'll talk. All right, man. And I'm definitely going to put those into the show notes so everybody can, if you're listening, you can go right to the show notes, click on that and get uh, right to Rick's page, which is phenomenal. And I do want to say, because, you know, we've had Cole from Alcon S2 and Elisa, everyone that I try to get on here that I have a relationship with are people who help. They want to help others in whatever capacity. It's not a competition. It's not about making millions of dollars. It's just about helping people. So when when you hear us talking about, oh, contact us anytime and, and we'll give you some information, it's not BS. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just paying lip service. If you contact Rick, he will give you a response and it, he will give you insights and information that are going to help you. So once again, Rick, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. And I know you don't need to hear this, but like I always say, stay safe out there. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.